Matthew chapter 21. I wonder if you've ever heard someone say something along the lines of, you know, the God of the Old Testament seems much different than the God of the New Testament. I wonder if you've ever encountered that type of statement. Maybe you read God's word this week in the Old Testament and you yourself thought, man, you know, seems to be a different God. Sometimes we read the Old Testament, we view God as strict or harsh. And so we quickly run to the New Testament because that's where God seems to be loving or compassionate. As believers, this happens to us because we tend to compartmentalize who God is. We begin to do this even with his word. We think of God is love and so we know, oh, you know what, there's, there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 13. This talks about where God is love. So we compartmentalize, we, we file that away. Oh, we go and we think, you know what, I need some wisdom, so I'm going to go to Proverbs. Just gonna, that's, that's the place you go for wisdom in God's word. It's very possible you come to sections of God's word that are a little bit more challenging. You go to Song of Solomon, you, com- you compartmentalize, you-, you file that under miscellaneous, right? We don't know where that should go. I hope that today, as we read Matthew 21, that you see that the God of the Old Testament is the same God that we're reading about today in Matthew 21. The same God who is loving and compassionate is the same God who is just and holy. And I hope that today, as you look from this lens and as we look backwards, you see the fullness of our God and the, good, the goodness of our God. I want to remind you where we've been in Matthew. It's Holy Week, and it's Tuesday of Holy Week. Jesus has cleansed the temple. He's now teaching among the crowds and the chief priests and the elders. He's already cursed the fig tree, and he's taught us that the kingdom is for those who not only look like they bear fruits, but it's for those who actually bear fruit. This was an indictment to the religious leaders that he's speaking to today. Last week, we saw these religious leaders challenge the authority of Jesus. And Jesus rebuked these leaders because they had rejected his authority. If you remember last week, we saw the parable of the two sons And we learn that those who repent and would follow Jesus would enter the kingdom of God. Just like the tax collectors and the prostitutes in the days of Jesus. They repented and they believed and they entered the kingdom. This week, we see the second parable of the three that are directed to these religious leaders. 
It's another instance where Jesus will present the truth of God's word to these religious leaders and will see again their blatant rejection of Jesus and his message. It's through this continued discourse with the religious leaders and the passage today, it'll teach us that judgment will come on those who reject God's goodness and God's word. Judgment will come on those who reject God's goodness and God's word. Let's look at the parable this morning as we read verses 33 through 39. Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants. And he went to a far country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Verse 36. And he sent to the other servants more than the first. And they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. In this story, we see how over time the people of Israel, the religious leaders, the leaders of the nations had rejected the goodness of God. In verse 6, Jesus, in these six verses, Jesus gives us a condensed version of salvation history through the teaching of this parable. He takes us all the way back. He's actually expounding on imagery that the prophet Isaiah himself used concerning Israel. Listen to Isaiah chapter 5. Let me sing for my beloved my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it, cleared it of its stones, planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst, and he hewed out a vine vat in it. And he looked to the yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. Doesn't that sound very similar to what we're reading today? This was common imagery that the people of Israel would have known, that the religious leaders would have known about. Look at the elements and the characters of this parable. We have a master of the house who's God. We have this vineyard that's Israel. Look at what Psalms 80 says, verse 8. You brought a vine out of Egypt. You drove out the nations and planted it. You cleared the grounds for it. Took deep root and filled the land. The mountains were covered with its shade. The mighty cedars with its branches. It sent out its branches to the sea, its shoot to the river. Do you see how this imagery was common for the people of Israel? This, this idea of it being a vineyard, of it producing fruit. We have these tenets. These were the leaders of the nations. Not just, these, not just the men that Jesus was specifically speaking to. He's referencing the leaders that had been here previously. We have these servants who are the prophets of God. 
And then we have the son. Mark says, the beloved son, who's Jesus. Look at verse 33 with me. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower. Do you see the goodness of this master? Do you see the love, the consideration? What you see here is God is depicting how the master planted this vineyard. Isaiah says that the master chose a fertile hill and then he cleared it. He dug it out. He took the stones out. Anybody ever do any type of uh, gardening or farming? You've got to go and clear out all the rocks. You've got to prepare the soil. Notice what he does. He puts a fence. Matthew says he puts a fence, and, and it was to keep out thieves, animals. That's why you would put a fence around your land. He dug this wine press for his vineyard. This was, what, this was such a laborious task because it involved having to cut rock and lay it in the ground. He builds this tower. It would have acted as a place of shelter, as a refuge. It would have acted as a, as a defense from enemies. Do you see the care that the master has for this vineyard? He's cultivating the land. He's protecting the land. He's setting it up so that it would accomplish exactly what he desired. It's because of the care and thoughtfulness of the master that there was an expectation that the vineyard would produce fruit. Look at what he does in verse 33. And he leased it to tenants and went into another country. The master entrusted these tenants to the care of his vineyard and its fruit. This wasn't uncommon in this day. The masters normally lived in the cities. And so they would hire tenants. They would rent out the land so they could work it. And then at the time of the harvest, they would collect the fruits, the harvest, whatever they were planting. God had entrusted the spiritual care and growth of his people to the religious leaders. But we'll see that ultimately they were after their self-interest. Ultimately, they weren't about the business of God. Ultimately, they were looking after their own self-interest. Church, I think this is a good reminder to us today. We are only tenants here. We are only stewards here. We have been placed here in Irving, Texas to sow and gather for the advancement of the kingdom. This is not ours. These rooms, these places, these buildings, they're not ours. This location, it's not ours. No, 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 no. We're only stewards. I think it's a good reminder for us today. That's why we pray today for the advancement of the gospel. Because we're tenants. And we have a mission. 
that God has entrusted to us in this season. All throughout Matthew, Jesus has been revealing that a kingdom is coming. And he's been showing us that his disciples would be active participants in that kingdom. And so it begs, to, it begs us to ask the question today. Are we active? Are we active participants in the kingdom of God? Are you a disciple of Christ here today? Are you busy with the work of the master? Or have you neglected what he's called you to do? There's fruit that must be gathered. Look at verse 34. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took the servant and beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first. They did the same to them. It was time to collect the fruits. So the master sends his servants. And what happens? It's, it's a pretty crazy story. The tenants beats, murder, and stone the servants. Who were the servants? They were the prophets. These were the men of God. And these tenants treated them in such a wicked way. This is the history of Israel. It's not like this was just a one-time thing. It wasn't like this was just a specific period in their history. No, no, no. This happened time and time again, church. Do you remember Ahab and Jezebel? In 1 Kings 18, it tells us about this king who reigned in the northern part of Israel who had a wife. And we're told that Jezebel had killed many of the prophets in that day. In 2 Chronicles, we hear about a priest named Zechariah. He was stoned because he admonished the people of God. The, the, the writer tells us that the people conspired against him after hearing his admonishment. I want you to hear what 2 Chronicles 36, 15 says. The Lord, the God of the fathers, sent persistently, listen to that, he sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets. These wicked tenants killed the servants of God. And so what does the master do? Look at verse 37. He finally sent his son to them saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw his son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him, threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. The master sends his son. The master thinks they will have enough decency to respect the heir of the vineyard. But it's not, it's not what we see, no. The, we see the true wickedness of the tenets here. The English really doesn't do justice to verse 36. 
The periods in that verse don't do it justice because what you see in the Greek is it's actually an emphatic tone. They're actually exhorting and jeering one another to accomplish the task of killing and murdering the son. It's almost like they're saying, no, 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 let's get together. Let's do this. We can do this. We can kill him and then take the inheritance. It'll be ours. What would you have done in this instance? If you were the master of the vineyard, what would you have done? What would you have done after your first servant was killed and murdered? Well, we, we live in Texas, so I can assume what you would do. I can tell you what we would not do. We would not have acted like this master. We would not have responded like this master. Why? Because this master is not like us. Because God is not like us. He's not only loving and gracious, but he's patient and forbearing all the time. See, I can be loving, but I'm not loving all the time. I can be compassionate, but I'm not always compassionate. No, no, this is the difference between us and God. God is always loving. He's always gracious. He's always patient. He's always forbearing. He's always merciful. Listen to what the Lord proclaims about himself. Exodus chapter 34, verse 6 and 7. The Lord passed before him, passed before Moses, and proclaimed, this is God speaking about himself, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is who God has always been, church, from the Old Testament to the New Testament, God has always been this way. He's immutable. That's what we say. He's unchanging. James says there is no variation or shadow due to change in him. This parable, even though it's demonstrating the wickedness of the tenants, the rejection of the people of Israel, of their God, it's also demonstrating God's judgment towards them. But it also displays the incredible love, grace, patience of our God. You know, there's not enough time in our lifetime to speak about the exhaustive goodness of our God. Generations after generations, centuries after centuries, God was demonstrating the vastness of his mercy to this people. And the religious leaders and the people of Israel vastly ignored and overlooked this. Listen to this. Think about this, church. The Lord had chosen them. He had chosen them to be a people 
He had chosen to bless them so that they might bless the other nations. He delivered them from Egypt. He gave them his law. He set them up in a new land, set them up a city, built them a temple. And what was their response? They rejected the master. They rejected his servants. You know, church, to be honest, this was a large concern for me this week as I studied and as I prepared. Because I want to I was just thinking how oftentimes I overlook the goodness of God. How quick I am to forget about his mercy and his compassion and his goodness. Why do we do this? Why is it that it's so easy to do this? I think it's because we have a tendency to make the extraordinary the ordinary every day. We have a tendency to make the extraordinary ordinary every day. My wife and I learned this lesson recently, the past few weeks, where we made something extraordinary ordinary, and we just began to overlook its, its, its blessing. You know, we've been dealing with plumbing issues the last couple of weeks. Many of you have been helping us and but, you know, our water began to back up at certain places, and we had to be very strategic with how we used our water. We had to turn it on and then make sure we weren't turning it on in too many places at the same time. Anybody ever have a plumbing issue here before? But you know what? It finally got fixed this past week. Thank you, Pastor Wayne. Finally got fixed. It's working. We have water whenever we want. We flush whenever we want. We shower whenever we want. It feels so luxurious. Because it is. It is. We're such a blessed people. It's not common everywhere to have what we have. It's extraordinary. But because we use it every day, because we can go turn our faucets on and leave and just, we'll know when we come back it'll be working. It becomes so ordinary. Maybe you've grown up in the Bible Belt. Maybe you've been in church your entire life. I'm going to urge you not to become like these religious leaders. Not to become like the people of Israel who felt entitled that Yahweh would be their God. And overlook how vastly gracious and merciful he truly is to us, church. Our God is a good God. And he is good to you and I. Not sometimes. Every moment of every day, he is good. Listen to what Listen again to how God proclaims himself. 
The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgressions and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. Did you hear that last line? He will by no means clear the guilty. These men had rejected the goodness of God, but they had also rejected his word. They had also rejected his word. Look at verse 40. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, there will, what will he do to the tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to the other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Look at the first warning that they reject. Jesus asks them a question. What will the owner do when he comes back? And they respond with the correct answer. It's very uncommon for the religious leaders to respond with the correct answer, but they do that here. They were right in predicting the destruction of these wicked men. In the Greek, there's actually a play on words here that the NIV does better in translating. It says, he will bring those wretches to a wretched end. They were right in predicting, though, that God would have mercy and that God would be gracious. God was going to invite other tenants who were going to produce fruits. If you pay attention, in verse 34, there's a change in, from the beginning where the master now says these tenants will produce fruits, not just fruit. Meaning these tenants were going to have a continual season of collection of fruits. But even this self-indictment is another measure of grace to these men. Why? Because it's not the first time that we see this. It's a time for Jesus to question them so that they might assess their proper con consequences. But it's an opportunity for them to see their faults and to lead them to repentance. We've seen this before. Do you remember David? King David, when he murdered Uriah, so that he could marry Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Do you remember that story? Do you remember what happens after that? The prophet Nathan comes to David and he tells him a parable and he says, hey, there's this rich man who has these flocks. There's this poor man who has this little ewe. That's all the poor man had. He said there was a feast coming and the rich man, instead of using the many flocks that he had, he goes and takes that one little lamb and he uses it he uses the poor man's lamb and you remember what happens David hears this and he grows in anger he's enraged and he says the man who did this deserves to die and Nathan responds you are the man it's you and what happens David responds 
in Psalms 51. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That was a purpose. How did these men respond? Mark gospel actually tells us they actually respond with an emphatic, surely not. Surely not. The master would never do that. Why would they respond that way? Because they did not know their God. They did not know that though he was gracious and merciful, he would not allow for the guilty to go away. Not only did they reject the warnings of Jesus, they rejected his word and ultimately the word of God. Look at verse 42. Jesus said to them, have you never read in scripture the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and it's marvelous in his eyes. How did they respond? How did Jesus respond? He responded with scripture. It's God's word. This isn't the first time that Jesus has done this. In this verse, he's actually quoting Psalms 118. In this passage, the psalmist was referring to the deliverance of Israel from a situation where it seemed that their enemies had triumphed. It was so bleak for them. It seemed like victory was unattainable. And so in Psalms 118, they write and ascribe to how this was only a miraculous intervention of God on behalf of his people. But now Jesus is declaring that he has become the cornerstone. What was the, what was the cornerstone? It was the most important stone of any building or any wall. It was a cornerstone that maintained the structural foundation of the building. It was a stone by which everything else was measured and built around. What was Jesus going to be the cornerstone of? Two, very, everything, but two very specific things. One, salvation. Look what Peter says in Acts chapter 4. I love when there's scripture that goes back and interprets itself. Look at Acts chapter 4 verse 10. Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by my name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone, and there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. In verse 42, Jesus was concluding the parable in a way that would subsequently happen to the, that would, that would happen to the son after he was murdered. He was showing in verse 42 what would happen to the son. The son of the tenants would reject and kill him. The stone that was rejected would be vindicated. He would be vindicated. Jesus would go to the cross and he would die. But on the third day, he would be raised from the dead and would take his rightful place seated at the right hand of God. It's through this act that he would provide salvation for all those who would believe. And Peter says, there is salvation in no one else. Jesus says that this was the Lord's doing, and it was marvelous. Ephesians tells us that this was the mystery of his will, 
This was according to God's purpose, which he set forth in Christ Jesus. So at the fullness of time, he would unite all things in him. This was God's plan from the beginning. And Jesus says that it's marvelous, that it's glorious, that it's perfect. Just like all of the plans of God today. If you're visiting here today, I want you to understand the depth of God's love for this people. Jesus knew the plans of God because he was God. He knew that he was being led to die on a cross. And he continued, even so, willingly. Why? So he might save his people from their sins. This is the vastness of Jesus' love towards us. Christ is not the only the cornerstone of salvation, but he's also the cornerstone of the church. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 2. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Christ is the head of the church. He's the foundation of our church, of every church. He's brought us here together this morning. He unites us to one another this morning. The tenants had rejected the master's son. The builders, they had rejected the cornerstone. It's a depiction of how these religious leaders had rejected Jesus as the Messiah. But now Jesus is concluding his teaching. And he pronounces judgment for the way of these men and how they had rejected him. Look, look at what it says in verse 43. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to people producing its fruit. And the one who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on any, anyone, it will crush him. And the chief priest and the Pharisees heard this heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking him to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet. This, is, this, this idea of the stone coming to crush is an echo of Daniel chapter 2. When the king has a dream and there's this statue that's built and this stone is cut out of it's cut out of uh, hands that are not human, and the stone begins to come and crush the statue. It's this image of the kingdom of heaven coming and establishing itself here on this earth. But notice that the kingdom is given over to people, this new people. Who are these people? It's those who produce fruit. What kind of fruit are they producing? The fruit of repentance and righteousness. Those who have not rejected the goodness of God nor the word of God. Those who repent of their sins and believe by faith in the death and resurrection of Jesus. Church, I wonder if you would take a moment and just thank the Lord today for allowing you to be a recipient of his grace. 
right now. Would you just, just praise the Lord for that? Maybe you have a spouse or you have a children or children that God has been gracious to. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord that he is so gracious to us. These men rejected the kindness and the patience of God. And they realized that he was speaking to them, about them the entire time. And what did they do? What did they do? Did they repent and say, you know what, forgive us. Forgive us for what we have done. That's not what they do. Look at what they do. They began to seek an opportunity to arrest him. Look what Romans chapter 2 says. Do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourselves, that you will escape the, the judgment of God? Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? If you're here today and you do not know Jesus, I would urge you to hear this story and to see the kindness and forbearance and the patience of God towards you today. That he would give you an opportunity to hear his message and to respond in faith and in belief. How do we respond this morning, church? How do we respond to God's word this morning? I want you to see as we continue through this section of the book of Matthew, we who are in Christ should be overwhelmingly thankful and grateful to the mercy of God. Because we're reading about people who are hearing the message and rejecting it. But if you're here in Christ, it's solely by his grace that you're here. As we read about Jesus and know him more through his revelation, we should be overwhelmed with feelings of praise and adoration. This is who our God is. He has invited us, church, to be tenants of his vineyard. To be good stewards of our time here. So as we leave here today, would you, would you go with the gospel? Would you go with the good news of Jesus Christ? Would you be active participants of the advancement of the kingdom here in Irving, Texas? Because this is why we've been called. This is why we've been set apart. So that the nations around might know about the majesty of our God. But what if you're a non-believer here? What if you've never trusted in Jesus Christ today? I wonder if you're here today and you've never believed by faith that he can save you from your sins. Your response is much different. You ought to hear the words today and choose to respond not like these religious leaders. You should not leave today and reject the message of Jesus. Jesus. 
No, I would urge you to hear the words of God today and to proclaim your faith in Jesus and to proclaim that there is salvation found in no other but Jesus alone. Your response today is to hear the message of God for salvation and to repent and to believe. If you wanted to do that here today, all you have to do is believe and repent of your sins. In a moment, the church is going to stand and sing. And that's a great opportunity for you to come and grab me as I sit here in the front and just say, you know what, I want to know more about this Jesus. I want to know more about this gospel and about this message of grace and patience and mercy. You can come talk to me. You can come talk to Pastor Kurt, Pastor Wayne, Kevin, who's been leading our services today. But what I don't want you to do is to leave here and reject Jesus again. In this parable, he's teaching that the guilty will not be left unpunished. Church, as we transition to our time of response, I want you to know that we're going to sing about the solid rock that we stand. And we're going to worship the capstone, the capstone of our faith, of our church. I just wanted to encourage you that you would worship our God for the goodness and faithfulness that he has been to us. Father, we come thanking you for your word. Lord, we're thankful that it reveals to us your will, your plan. It reveals to us who you are, your character, your goodness, your faithfulness, your justice, your holiness, your mercy. Father, we're thankful today as your people that you've extended this grace to us today. I pray, Father, for that individual who's here this morning who does not believe. Father, would you be gracious and merciful today? Would today be the day of salvation for them? We just pray that you would lead us as a church as we leave to go with your gospel, to proclaim the goodness of your mercy to us. We ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Church, would you stand? Let's worship this solid rock.